Well, greetings. Welcome to The Dividing Line. It is, uh, it is Advent week. Uh, we're coming up on the celebration of Christmas and a um, lot to get to, but I would be inappropriate if I did not start off uh, a program on the 19th of December with wishing a happy birthday to my two eldest granddaughters, Cadence and Clementine, who share a birthday, uh, which is pretty amazing. Um, it is so much fun to see <clears throat> how close those two have become over the past number of years. And um, despite the fact that uh, Cadence is, you know, like two feet taller than Clementine now, uh, <clears throat> and is frighteningly less than two years away from driving. Um, that's, uh, yeah, yeah, Rich just uh, re responded to that. But yeah, less than less than two years away from, from driving. That's um, <clears throat> sobering, very, very, very sobering. So a uh, blessed thing, a blessed, <laughs> blessed Thanksgiving to them both. <laughs> there you go. A happy birthday to uh, to both uh, Cadence and um, Clementine. Looking forward to uh, seeing them again on um, Christmas Day coming up. Uh, <clears throat> so much to get to today, and we would be very, very much remiss if we did not focus our time on the uh, continuing crisis within Roman Catholicism and the opportunities that that um, gives to us to speak to key and important issues that we've been addressing since the late 1980s, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, <clears throat> that's really when I first began my studies into this area and interactions with, um, with Roman Catholics, and the issues really haven't changed much. I mean, obviously, Rome has changed a lot since then. <clears throat> um you know, when John Paul II was Pope, he was Pope for a long period of time. There was a period of stability. And um, that has now passed. And the past decade of Francis, after the sudden and totally unexpected resignation of Benedict, Cardinal Ratzinger, <clears throat> um, has really sh shown a light on so much that clearly even many of my um, Reformed Baptist brethren have not understood and really appreciated uh, why Solo Scriptura is so important and how it must be understood and how you can detect uh, defections from Solo Scriptura. Um, those these are all vitally important things. But yesterday, the internet blew up. <clears throat> um, and uh, everybody saw it, I would imagine. Starting yesterday morning, um, I saw a link uh, to an article that I then began reading and realized this is something that's going to have to be discussed on the dividing line. Um, I wrote a short little thing, two short little things on Twitter, as the headlines began exploding and reactions started coming from lots of different areas. Uh, 
on both sides of the divide within Roman Catholicism, which is a very wide divide. Um, you know, every time I hear Roman Catholics talking about how unified they are versus how ununified Protestants are, I, I just have to remember, once again, that the range of expression of beliefs amongst those who claim some kind of fidelity to the concept of the papacy versus the range of beliefs expressed by those who claim and seek to practice sola scriptura is not even comparable. The denominations, churches that teach sola scriptura and seek to practice it have a have so much more actual unity in doctrine than those who claim some type of fealty to the Bishop of Rome. The range of expression there is much, much wider. Um, and what's going on right now really, really illustrates that while there have been those who have said sola scriptura is the blueprint for anarchy, the reality is profession of fealty to the concept of the papacy combined with combined with Cardinal Newman's development hypothesis is the blueprint for anarchy. That's the real blueprint for anarchy, and you're seeing it right now. It's being lived out right in front of us. So I think this is really, really important. I, I know that not everyone in our audience <clears throat> has dealt with the issue of Roman Catholicism and dealt with issues of biblical sufficiency, um, sacramentalism, I want to be a part of the quote-unquote ancient church, all the rest of this type of stuff. I... I fear that so many within my own quote-unquote tribe have accepted rather surface-level understandings of the battle that was going on during the Reformation and after the Reformation, especially in response to the Counter-Reformation, and has been continuing since then. Every time I see someone convert to Rome from my tribe, and then I listen to them talking, I realize either they're being wildly dishonest now, or when they were a part of my tribe, they had no idea why they were on the key and central issues of biblical sufficiency and things like that. <clears throat> so it's, it's time for all of us, I think, to really buckle down and come to an understanding of these issues because we've, we've never been in my lifetime, we have never been in a better position to be able to demonstrate the utter necessity of solo scriptura. Um, the actions of the Bishop of Rome and those around him, this is an interesting aspect of it. In light of dogmas, propounded by the First Vatican Council and things like that, um, illustrates the 
emptiness of the claims on the part of Rome to be able to provide some kind of epistemological certainty concerning even her own teachings. Um, people are realizing today, I can't know whether I am actually interpreting the teachings of the church correctly. If cardinals can write to the Pope officially asking for clarifications on points of doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church. And in less than three years, get completely contradictory answers, which is what is going on, which is what has just happened. In less than three years, cardinals, what hope does Joe Q regular Roman Catholic have of having any kind of knowledge Yes, what I believe is what is officially taught by the Roman Catholic Church, believed by the Holy Father. <clears throat> um, it, you know, I, I think back over the past number of decades, the number of debates we've done on the Sola Scriptura, and I think of the things that were confidently said. There was, a, there was a debate I attended that I was not actually involved with, amazingly enough, haven't been to many of those. <clears throat> the three-on-three -three debate on Sola Scriptura in Southern California uh, back in the 90s. <coughs> and how different that debate would be today than it was only you know 25 years ago. And that should tell you something. That should tell you something. I mean, there is a consistency in the way that Reformed apologists defend the gospel, the doctrine of the church, and especially Sola Scriptura, from the Reformation onward. There's consistency. Rome has had been consistent up until Vatican II, and within academia earlier than that. But that's all changed. That's all changed. The Roman Catholic side could not debate today the way they did in the 1990s. They couldn't make the same presentation because they'd be opening themselves up to direct refutation by their own allegedly infallible Pope. What are we talking about? You, you might be sitting there going, what in the world happened that I missed? Well, if you were asleep yesterday, you uh, did what I did. I did my birthday ride yesterday. That was almost four hours on the bike. And um, maybe that's what you did. And then you fell asleep immediately thereafter. I certainly slept well last night. Um, well, actually, you know what? Come to think of it, I'm not sure I slept well at all. I forgot to actually... Uh, eh. My 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 program says <laughs> it's you know fifty five percent. So it, you know it's it's not bad, but you know could have been better. Anyway, there is a document that you can go online and read for yourself today if you want to <clears throat> look for it. If you put in fiducia supplicans, isn't it wonderful to have to spell Latin stuff, but 
Fiducia Supplicans, a declaration uh, from the Dicastery. Now, what is the Dicastery? The Dicastery, <coughs> they've changed the name a number of times over the decades. Um, but it is the modern continuation of what used to be called the Inquisition. And um, Cardinal Ratzinger was once the head of the Inquisition. Uh, the Congregation for the Faith, I think, is what it was called back then. Something like that. Anyway, um, Francis has been working diligently to rid the leadership of the Roman Catholic Church of its conservatives. I don't think anybody would actually disagree with that. He had gotten rid of the relatively conservative. And when we say conservative, for someone like me, um, almost anybody in the leadership of the Roman Catholic Church is considerably to the left of me on fundamental issues regarding inerrancy, inspiration, uh, stuff like that. I mean, Rome has been thoroughly, thoroughly infected with progressivist theology at its at its core. And so, <clears throat> to say conservative in regards to a cardinal or archbishop or something like that, <clears throat> we're, we're talking about within the context of Roman Catholicism. And he removed the head of the, the castery and put one of his old buddies from South America, from Buenos Aires, uh, in control only a matter of weeks ago. Now, what's really interesting that I didn't know is um, this fella... His name is Victor Manuel Fernandez. And he started rising up the ranks as soon as Francis became Pope. And now he's in one of the most influential positions within the Roman Catholic hierarchy. Even though it has been documented that that same organization, the former Inquisition, had kept files on him because his theology was questionable. So they had they had actually investigated him, and now he's in charge. <coughs> All of this, honestly, makes me look back on what's going on politically in the United States and go, it's happening everywhere. Um, you know, there's the same kind of corruption all over. And so here this guy, he is reported to be the author of some of Francis's uh, papal documents. Um, and so he's very central. And he himself has said he is far to the Pope's left on many issues. So he is a true progressivist on almost everything. The document that came out came out under Francis's signature, but it was written by Fernandez. You have to do this a number of times if you're listening on audio. 
<clears throat> as you can tell, I've got a um, respiratory thing going on. It's not too bad. Hasn't stopped me from writing, but it will make um, continuous speech for a lengthy period of time <clears throat> somewhat pro- problematic. Anyway, um, this Fernandez, everybody knows he is way off to the left, and he is the one who wrote not only the document, but also the introduction to the document that was released yesterday uh, morning. Well, morning here. It was probably in the afternoon over in Italy. <clears throat> what you need to understand is that the vast majority of the news coverage of this particular document once again is not looking at the, the big picture. Francis is seeking to move Rome and form Rome in his own image. He has an ultimate goal. And part of his changing how his successor is going to be chosen is to continue that process even after he's resigned or is dead. He's not in good health right now. So People have been speculating, why push this out? Why the week before Christmas, for crying out loud, just a matter of days. Why now? And I I think the reason is he's not well. And that has had to accelerate a process. The process is seen in the synod on the synodality, which most people were not paying any attention to. But we reported on it, and we talked about the fact. You know, it would help a lot if I just lift this up a little bit and then back off on the volume. <clears throat> uh, Rich can, Rich can, stop shaking. Uh, Rich can, uh, yeah, no, I'm not getting it that close to me. Um, Rich can, uh, can pick up the, the amplification on the other end. The... When you hear multiple people who were in attendance at this synod who are conservative, consistent, lifelong Roman Catholics saying all they want to do is force us to accept homosexuality. When they're coming out of this synod, and that's what they're saying. They're saying, you know, we're being guilted into accepting the goodness of this worldview, this, the LGBTQ plus revolution. (laughs) And when people are being chosen to speak um, and present at, at this synod who are plainly far outside the historical realm, of the moral, ethical, and doctrinal teachings of the Roman Catholic Church, this is all Francis is doing. <clears throat> he has had 10 years to get the old guard to retire and to replace them with his own acolytes, with those the people who think like he thinks. You must understand what's going on in Germany as well. The German Roman Catholic Church is, again, highly progressivist. 
and has a lot of money and hence has a lot of influence <clears throat> and is not far from Italy. And there is a really good chance that one of the reasons that this statement was pushed out when it is was to try to head off a directly schismatic action on the part of the German bishops who are already, in essence, blessing same-sex unions. They're, I mean, they're just openly saying, this is what we need to do. <coughs> so, he's, he wants, he clearly wants to go that direction. But what he is basically saying to the progressivists is, it has to be done in the right order, in the right time, slowly. And so, unlike John Paul II, who, you know, one year he'd throw a bone to the conservatives, and the next year he'd throw a bone to the liberals, and that's just sort of how he operated. Um, Francis is, has one direction. There's no throwing anything to the conservatives at all outside of just kicking them out of their, their offices and uh, retiring them. That's what, he's, that's what he's about. So what is utterly fascinating to me is that when we look at this document, it's available online at Vatican. Just If you go to, <clears throat> to, to, uh, to press.vatican.va, and, and put in uh, fiducia supplicans, it'll pop up. It's called On the Pastoral Meaning of Blessings. And there is a presentation, there's an introduction provided um, by Fernandez. And it is quite fascinating. It says, this declaration considers several questions that have come to this dicastery in recent years. In preparing the document, the dicastery, as is its practice, consulted experts, undertook a careful drafting process, and discussed the text in the Congress of the doctrinal section of the dicastery. During that time, the document was discussed with the Holy Father. Finally, the text of the declaration was submitted to the Holy Father for his review, <clears throat> and he approved it with his signature. So, this has papal approval. While the subject matter of this document was being studied, the Holy Father's response to the dubia, dubia submitted questions from bishops, archbishops, cardinals, whatever, <clears throat> of some cardinals was made known. That response provided important clarifications for this reflection and represents a decisive element for the work of the dicastery. Since, quote, the Roman Curia is primarily an instrument at the service of the successor of Peter, our work must foster, along with an understanding of the Church's perennial doctrine, the reception of the Holy Father's teaching. So here is a statement that the, the castery, the modern embodiment of the Inquisition, is primarily at the behest of the papacy. As with the Holy Father's above-mentioned response to the dubia of two cardinals, this declaration remains firm on the traditional doctrine of the Church about marriage, not allowing any type of liturgical rite or blessing similar to a liturgical rite that can create confusion. Now, this is important. 
<clears throat> because, well, um, the value of this document, however, is that it offers a specific and innovative contribution to the pastoral meaning of blessings, permitting a broadening and enrichment of the classical understanding of blessings. Notice, broadening and enrichment of the classical understanding of blessings, which is closely linked to a liturgical perspective. <clears throat> now here's here's key, key phrase. Such theological reflection, buzzword within Roman Catholicism. <clears throat> Normally within the context of theological reflection upon the living tradition of the church, which means we're coming up with something new. Based on the pastoral vision of Pope Francis, implies a real development. Hear those two words. Real development from what has been said about blessings in the magisterium and the official texts of the church, this explains why this text has taken on the typology of a declaration. Now, what <clears throat> what is that referred to? Well, we'll look at it in a moment, but it's referring to a document from the dicastery that is less than three years old, March of 2021. Less than three years. And when you hear the term development, your ears should pop up if you're familiar at all with what's called the development hypothesis of John Henry Cardinal Newman. Modern Roman Catholic theologians and even modern Roman Catholic apologists, apologists tend to be considerably more conservative than the theologians um, and the prelates in the church. But no one can begin to defend the most unique dogmas of Rome, the ones most recently defined, which would be papal infallibility, immaculate conception, bodily assumption, along with many other beliefs that are, at least in church history, still relatively new um, dogmas Defined by Rome. <clears throat> no one can do that without invoking Newman. Newman's hypothesis was that it, it, Newman's hypothesis was an abandonment of the historical field of battle. Because what he said was we shouldn't be looking for evidence of these beliefs, these more modern defined beliefs in the ancient church, because the truth is the, the tradition, the living tradition delivered by the apostles to those first bishops is like the acorn to the tree. And if you're, if you're looking for a full-grown tree when the only thing that's around right now is the acorn, you're not going to find it. It has to have time to grow. And so there's no reason to look back into ancient church history to find um, these dogmas because like the acorn, they were underground and they were growing and they were rooting themselves and then 
then they come up through the through the through the ground you start to see them but they're they're small they're not fully developed and it, it's this development of doctrine over time now one of the reasons that Newman's thesis has worked for Rome is that there's an element of truth to it i mean no thesis that has no element of truth to it at all is ever going to get off the ground. No one's even going to give it a second thought. <clears throat> well, okay, not until modern times. Um, I think of transgender theory, and that sort of refutes my argument. But anyway, um, there's an element of truth to what Newman says. Because, for example, all of us would have to admit that there is a development there is a clarification of terminology in the doctrine of God in the early centuries of the church. Because the gospel message is leaving the primarily Israel context, out of which it comes, the Jewish context out of which it came, and is now encountering a primarily Greek Roman context. And as a result, Questions are being asked that come from a different worldview, come from a different background. And so you have to you have to come up with answers that will be understandable in a different context than has ever been addressed before. And so there is an appropriate kind of development. But the issue is always what is the source of this development? Where does it come from? What's What's, what's the grounding of it? And so what has happened with Newman's, what, what Newman did, and the story is well known, you may not be familiar with it, but <clears throat> he opposed the movement to have the Pope declared infallible, which took place at the Second Vatican Council, Second Vatican, uh, First Vatican Council, we'll get there eventually. Uh, and then, once it was proclaimed, then he had to bow to that authority, even though he had demonstrated before 1870 that the dogma is historically fallacious. Once Rome says it's true, then you reinterpret history in light of that. So here's the problem. The development hypothesis necessary for the dogmas that clearly are utterly unknown in the early church. Bodily assumption. Didn't know anything about it. It was not definitional of the faith. It was not, there, there's no way to trace it back to the apostles. It is a tradition that develops over time and has now become a dogma of the church. You have to have Newman's development hypothesis to defend that kind of stuff. Uh, the problem is, once you embrace it, you, you may think, well, this is great. This will help us. This is, this is very, very useful. Until it turns on you. Until it turns on you. Such theological reflection based on the pastoral vision of Pope Francis implies a real development from what has been said about blessings in the magisterium and the official text of the church. It might have just gone ahead and said, less than three years ago. Why, why, do I, why, why am I referring to that? Well, um, 
there is a document that's still on the Vatican website. And it is from uh, March 15th, 2021. So we're what? Four months away from it being three years ago. So two years, eight months. This was the preceding guy in charge of the dicastric. <laughs> the too conservative for Francis guy. Um, and well, actually, this is signed by uh, Louis F. Ladario. Okay. He's been replaced by Fernandez. Well, Fernandez is in the position he held. I don't, don't know when he was removed or retired or whatever. Um, <clears throat> well, this actually says the 22nd of February, but uh, was released on the 15th. Uh, and the question that was proposed that this is an answer to from, from this is the response of the congregation for the doctrine of the faith. So the dicastery now. Um, does the church have the power to give the blessing to unions of persons of the same sex? Less than three years ago. Uh, after talking about the nature of blessings, their relationship to uh, the sacraments. Uh, it says, blessings belong to the category of the sacraments whereby the church calls us to praise God, encourages us to implore His protection, and exhorts us to seek His mercy by our holiness of life. In addition, they have been established as a kind of imitation of the sacraments. Blessings are signs above all of, of spiritual effects that are achieved through the church's intercession. After discussing that, it says, Consequently, in order to conform with the nature of sacramentals, when a blessing is invoked on particular human relationships, in addition to the right intention of those who participate, it is necessary that what is blessed be objectively and positively ordered to receive and express grace, according to the designs of God inscribed in creation and fully revealed by Christ the Lord. Therefore, only those realities which are themselves ordered, remember homosexuality within Roman Catholic moral theology is disordered, <clears throat> which are in themselves ordered to serve those ends, are congruent with the essence of the blessing empowered by the church. Now, okay, they like using big words. I get it. But it actually makes perfect sense. If you're going to seek to ask the blessings of the grace of God, what the, those blessings are to be placed upon have to be congruent with the essence of the blessing imparted by the church. So these realities, which are in themselves ordered to serve those ends, are congruent with the essence of that blessing imparted by the church. For this reason, it is not licit to impart a blessing on relationships or partnerships, even stable, that involves sexual activity outside of marriage, that is outside the indissoluble union of a man and woman, open in itself to the transmission of life, as is the case of the unions between persons of the same sex. 
The presence in such relationships of positive elements which are in themselves to be valued and appreciated cannot justify these relationships and render them legitimate objects of an ecclesial blessing since the positive elements exist within the context of a union not ordered to the Creator's plan. Now, whether they want to admit it or not, that section contains within it the fatal flaw of their theology on this subject. Um, when, when you have a relationship that is specifically in rebellion against God's created design, you're not going to have anything positive in it. Because it is marked by its rebellion against the Creator's design. It's, it's by nature. So by opening that door, they, they provided the way of their own refutation, whether they want to admit it or not. <laughs> Furthermore, since blessings on persons are in relationship with the sacraments, the blessing of homosexual unions cannot be considered licit. This is because they would constitute a certain imitation or an analog of the nuptial blessing invoked on the man and woman united in the sacrament of matrimony, while in fact there are absolutely no grounds for considering homosexual unions to be in any way similar or even remotely analogous to God's plan for marriage and family. So, this was the, uh, it's, it goes on to say, the declaration of the unlawfulness of blessings of unions between persons of the same sex is not therefore, and is not intended to be a form of unjust discrimination, but rather a reminder of the truth of the liturgical rite and of the very nature of the sacramentals as the church understands them. So, here is a consistent um, stand reflective of previous positions, popes and councils and everything else on this particular issue, uh, which has now been overthrown, um, has been developed. <laughs> there has been development in the past less than three years. I just want you to think about what that means. Development in less than three years that fundamentally results in the negation of what we were just talking about here. Um, now, they try to soften it. Um, and of course, this is from Francis too. But this is less than three years ago. They try to soften it by saying... Um, Check this out. At the same time, the church recalls that God himself never ceases to bless each of his pilgrim children in this world because for him, quote, we are more important to God than all of the sins we can commit, end quote. And I looked at that and I, and I went, um, where did that come from? And I scrolled down, oh, Pope Francis, general audience of December 2nd, 2020, Catechesis on Prayer, The Blessing. So they can quote Francis in a general audience. But if we quote Francis in a general audience, then we're taking him out of context and that's not meant to be constitutive of his own teaching. Mm, okay. 
It goes on, but he does not and cannot bless sin. He blesses sinful man so that he may recognize that he is part of his plan of love and allow himself to be changed by him. He isn't, he in fact takes us as we are, but never leaves us as we are. End quote. Sounds like a bunch of emergent church goo um, coming straight out of Rome when you when you think about it. I had started to write this. Um, well, I, I had almost finished the message when something happened. I I I tried to escape out of something and it lost the entire message. So this this is what I was going to write in response to somebody this morning who was talking about all this stuff. These theological errors compound over time. And Rome does not have a finished work of Christ. Rome has a sacramental system that functions as channels through which God's grace is controlled by what man does. Hence, the Roman Catholic does not know if they're the blessed man. Um, they cannot know if they have peace with God. And there are foundational reasons for why this is. The foundations are cracked. And we're seeing those cracks opening up into broad crevices. And that's what's happening right now. Because here you have Rome speaking in 2021, and now you have Rome speaking in 2023, and they're saying different things. And when you think about specifically what it is that they are saying, you put this together with what's happening in Germany, you put this together with the uh, ongoing purging of conservatives, you put this together with the Synod on, on Synodality. The presentations that were made there. The people that, that Francis is supporting. Uh, this morning, actually, uh, Dr. Moeller described it as Francis changing the church by suggestion. And that's what these types of statements, that's what these types of documents are meant to do. They are meant to suggest something. And then, later on, you build on what you had suggested earlier as if you had actually taught it as doctrine. And so, it was purposeful when the Pope, long ago on that plane ride, asked about homosexuality. Who am I to judge? He knows how completely out of line that is with his predecessors. And there's not a single one of you out there that could look at me right in the eye without breaking up laughing and say to me in that context that any pope, any pope prior to Francis would ever have put out a document like this. Which one? When? You know it's not possible. You know this represents a fundamental shift and change. 
even when you say, well, but you know, they really try to say we're not changing, we're not changing doctrine, we're not changing doctrine, we can't, we cannot change the doctrine of, of marriage. Well, you couldn't change the doctrine of capital punishment either, but you did. And the fact of the matter is you can. And the system allows it. Because you have established that office and the person in that office as the final authority. He's final authority. You can't go to conciliarism. That was that got put down after conciliarism rescued the church in the um, you know early 15th century. So you can't go there. You're stuck with this. You're stuck with this. You have development of doctrine. And you have, up until this point, trusted in some kind of firewall that would not allow that to bring this kind of situation about. But the firewall wasn't there. Um, I, I believed that amongst Protestants, at least amongst Reformed Protestants, belief in sola scriptura would function as a firewall to keep us from buying into silly worldly philosophies and wokeness and things like that. And I was wrong. We saw that starting in 2020. Um, you may have thought you had a firewall. But you don't. And you're, you're seeing it right in front of you. And a lot of you just don't even want to admit it. The, the Pope has his defenders today and well, it's really not all that bad and really hasn't changed anything. It's just talking about, you know, how you give blessings. And look, it, it's specifically, it says it is precisely in this context that one can understand the possibility of blessing couples in irregular situations and same sex couples without officially validating their status or changing in any way the church's perennial teaching on marriage. That's the claim. And I I look at my Roman Catholic friends and I go, look, we've been here, we've done that, we got the t-shirt. And the t-shirt has a picture of all the closed former mainline churches that have died because they all said the same stinking thing. You need to understand how progressivists act and think. They're not going for the whole shot at one time. We're going to change the theology of the church. They know that you cannot do that at that speed. It has to be done very slowly. But you can do it. You can make it happen, and that's what the Pope is doing. If you just stand back, don't get all lost in, well, you know, it says this, that, and the other thing. Yeah, it it says you're not to give this blessing in such a way as to bring confusion about what true marriage is. What you should be addressing is if someone comes to the church in a same-sex union, you call them to conversion. You call them to Christ. You call them out of those things. Such were some of you, not such are some of you. 
You use the term repentance and conversion. Now, I realize your doctrine of baptism has messed all that up, especially if you're talking to baptized, quote-unquote, baptized Catholics. I realize that. But there's nothing here about, well, there is a couple of uses of the term repentance, but it's, it's not the idea of turning from the objective evil of this behavior. So, notice it says, it is precisely in this context that one can understand the possibility of blessing couples in irregular situations, same-sex couples, without officially validating their status or changing in any way the church's perennial teaching on marriage. All the Protestant mainline denominations said that. They all said the same thing. If we do this, it's not going to impact anything else at all. It's not going to impact your marriage or anything like that. And they were lying. And conservatives are gullible. And so we've heard it all before. Do you really honestly think, do you really honestly think that this is going to be the end? It's just going to go this far and no farther? Look, look around. Look at the PCUSA. Um, look at the ELCA. Look at the United Methodists. Look at the United Church of Christ. Did they stop with this kind of, well, we have to be really careful that it doesn't look like a marriage? How do you do that? If you have two people come before a priest and ask him to bless their relationship, what good does it do if you say, um, but there can't be flowers present? <laughs> You know, uh, someone can't be wearing white. Um, you know, you can't have a reception afterwards. Um, what good does that do? Everybody, all know, everybody knows what it is. Everybody knows what's going on. And this is... This, this isn't just about Rome, unfortunately. Sadly. Um... Rome, in many ways, already holds what I would call the side B position. And if you have um, listened to the debate with Gregory Coles, you know what the side B position is. Within gay Christianity, Rome has bought into the idea that even though homosexual desire is disordered, it's not sinful. There's nothing to repent of. <clears throat> and of course, we have a different doctrine of repentance, forgiveness, justification, everything. Sadly. And that's part of the problem here. But the, the, the door was already somewhat unlocked because of fundamental theological problems within the Roman Catholic system. And so you, you have this document, which, by the way, specifically cites the previous one that I was reading from. 
in the second paragraph, it's, it's found there. You have this document, and it says, and I said I was going to get to it. Wow, have I gone nearly an hour already? I'm sorry, I realize I'm going slow. Um, part of it's just, you know. Rich is telling me to take my time. Um, section 31. Well, I still have another topic and a half to get to. Section 31 of yesterday's document. Within the horizon outlined here appears the possibility of blessings for couples in irregular situations and for couples of the same sex, the form of which should not be fixed ritually by ecclesial authorities to avoid producing confusion with the blessing proper to the sacrament of marriage. Well, you wouldn't be having confusion if you were calling people to repentance rather than blessing this ongoing situation. In such cases, a blessing may be imparted that not only has an ascending value, but also involves the invocation of a blessing that descends from God upon those who, now listen to this, recognizing themselves to be destitute and in need of his help, do not claim a legitimation of their own status, but who beg that all that is true, good, and humanly valid in their lives and their relationships be enriched, healed, and elevated by the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now just pastorally consider these words. So, the blessing descends on who? People recognizing themselves to be destitute and in need of his help do not claim a legitimation of their own status. So, are we to understand that it's going to be appropriate for a priest to ask them if they believe their continued relationship is sinful or not? Because if, if they say our relationship isn't sinful and we're going to continue it, that's a claim of le- uh, that's, that's legitimation of their own status to use the exact words of the document. So, you can only give this blessing to people who recognize they're in a wrong relationship and are willing to cease it? That doesn't sound like what it's saying, but that would be the way it makes any sense. Because as long as they continue in it, then they are legitimizing it, aren't they? but who beg that all that is true, good, and humanly valid in their lives and their relationships be enriched, healed, and elevated by the presence of the Holy Spirit. You're literally calling for the presence of the Holy Spirit in a same-sex union? This is, this is to be for the Holy Spirit to enrich, heal, and elevate that relationship by his presence therein, a rebellion, re- rebellious rejection 
of his own plainly revealed will? See, see we, we've gotten, whether it's in politics or religion, leftists can write long sentences that contain two or three contradictions in one sentence and think it's a good thing. And think that it, it is doublespeak. And, 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 to, and to think that because they use that many syllables, no one's going to catch them at it. Because that, that sentence makes no sense. These forms of blessing express a supplication that God may grant those aids that come from the impulses, <coughs> impulses of his spirit what classical theology <laughs> don't get me started on that what classical theology calls actual grace really actual grace so that human relationships may mature and grow in fidelity to the gospel folks there is there is only one way for a claimed same-sex marriage to grow in fidelity to the gospel, and that is by ceasing in repentance. Right? If, 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 if you don't agree with that, then you're saying, well, yes, according to Rome, you can have same-sex relationships that can grow in fight, they can mature and grow in fidelity to the gospel by the presence of his spirit that they may be freed from their imperfections and frailties how do you free a same-sex relationship from its imperfections and frailties i'm just reading you the document and that they may express themselves in the ever-increasing dimension of the divine love. That's a lot of words. Don't think it means anything, but there are a lot of words there. And I guess that's the idea. That's actual grace. Human relationships may mature and grow in fidelity to the gospel. There's only one way for that to happen. <clears throat> I couldn't help but notice in passing um, Section 44 says, any blessing will be an opportunity for a renewed proclamation of the kerygma. Kerygma is the message of the gospel, by the way. An invitation to draw ever closer to the love of Christ. Evidently without repentance. As Pope Benedict XVI taught, like Mary, the church is the mediator of God's blessing for the world. She receives it in receiving Jesus, and she transmits it in bearing Jesus. He is the mercy and the peace of the world of itself. He is the mercy and the peace of the world. That the world. Sorry. Blah, 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 blah. I put it in green. This probably wasn't the best one. He is the mercy and the peace that the world of itself cannot give, and which it needs always, at least as much as bread. I don't know... Somewhere in the back of my mind, 
I'm just wondering if that wasn't meant to be a post-mortem shot at Benedict. Because Benedict would never have allowed this. In fact, I, I want to ask every Roman Catholic, can you look me in the eye and tell me that any pope before Francis would have ever countenanced what is in this document? Which one? Which one? Um, <clears throat> the, the end of it says, um, in this way, every brother and every sister will be able to feel that in the church, they're always pilgrims, always beggars, always loved, and despite everything, always blessed. You know where I heard that language all the time? From PCUSA, ELCA, United Methodist, all the ultra-leftist liberals. That's what you get every Sunday from the pulpit. And here you have it in the context of blessing of same-sex unions <coughs> as long as it doesn't look like, as long as it doesn't create confusion. And I'm, I'm sitting here going, I am, I am thankful that I've seen a lot of conservative Roman Catholics that have read this saying, they've read it all the way through, and they, they call it what it is. I had a Roman Catholic yesterday call it what it is. <laughs> I can't repeat what, it was, what was said, but they call it what it is. It's doublespeak. It has no meaning. Yes, sir. You're going to allow me to take a drink here and yeah, save my voice for a you're second? Yeah, on that, um, you know, it occurs to me, I, I think of um, who was the pope that pope after pope anathematized. What? Uh, Honorius. Honorius. I'm, I'm thinking of Honorius, and it strikes Honorius me... Honorius is thankful that you're thinking about him. Yeah, I'm sure he is. Um, I have a feeling. Anyway, we'll not go there. Um it strikes me that he has um, he's taking care to see to it that popes who follow him do not do what they did to Honorius, to him. And that is by padding the College of Cardinals and seeing to it that he has allies who will take up the mantle after him. And this could be going on for generations. Where's the rich camp? Oh, it's it's fine. We don't need the rich camp. But <laughs> all right, you want the rich camp? Your, no, your your legions of of fans are um, undoubtedly um, displeased. There, there you go. That there you go. There's no rich camp. There yeah. you go. So, but it, it it just it strikes me that he's he's taken a political he's taken political advantage where poor Honorius didn't have the foresight. To see to it that those who oh. followed him uh, would go down that same trail. Now, think about that for a second. Had Honorius done that and had that foresight and padded those who the, those who would vote for the next pope and the ones that followed that, what would the Roman Catholic Church, what would the development be today <clears throat> of that? Well... Yeah, I don't know, but there is one. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to correct you on one little thing. You know, it, it's, it's what happens when when you teach church history. But 
what everybody needs to know is until the 10th century, the Bishop of Rome was always selected by the people of Rome. The whole cardinals and all this stuff is a modern development. And it's not how it worked for the first But But even years. better, you've got this political environment he could have taken advantage of. And, you know, I mean, we're seeing it in our own country today, the political environment and the, the tides are. of war and or the tides of, of, of politics, etc. The point would be that, you know, if, if he could have seen his lineage going forward, what things would have gone forward with it? Because this guy is. This guy isn't just here for a time, folks. Oh, no, no. He he is here for generations to come, and he has put his roots down very deep. Well, he's no. he knows exactly how to make long-term changes. Yeah. He, he knows how to use the system. And that's my point, is once you make, once you put the infallible head there, um, you're stuck with them. There's, there's no, there's no reformation at that point. Which again, tradition, 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 um, solo scriptura. You know, and and some of them say, well, what good does solo scriptura do you? Do you? You're you're telling us all these mainline denominations. I've got to turn my volume down if my voice is going to last another twenty minutes. Well, I know, but I I keep talking loud. Um, a, a, a Roman Catholic might honestly say, "You multicolored hypocrite," because I do have a lot of colors on today. I like this. This is a nice. Is this a Kuji or a Tundra? I'm trying to remember. Anyway, you're 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 a glowing hypocrite because you're telling us that Presbyterians, United Methodists, Lutherans, there's all these you know United Church of Christ, all these people apostatized on this stuff a long time ago, who do you think you are? <clears throat> and again, let me point out something to you. Let me make sure everybody caught this, because I mentioned it briefly before. Um, none of those denominations even have the, 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 the still official Roman Catholic view of Scripture even though it's subjugated to, it's put under sacred tradition, and you have oral tradition along with it and stuff like that. But the official position is still a relatively high view of that. They abandoned that stuff long ago. You cannot practice sola scriptura if you do not believe that God has spoken in Scripture. If you do not believe, when Jesus said, have you not read what God spoke to you? When, when Peter said, men were carried along by the Holy Spirit as they spoke from God. If you don't believe that, you can't, you may have solo scriptura in your confession of faith. It doesn't matter. You don't believe it. You can't believe it. You can't practice it. And those denominations, the, the first step they took on the road to having rainbow-stoled priestesses um, was they abandoned the sufficiency inspiration of Scripture. And so, um, as I said, if you look at those denominations that not only believe in Sola Scriptura, but practice it knowingly, they understand here's what, here's how tradition gets in the way. Here's how tradition is brought in. And this is how we're going to fight that. When you look at what they believe on God, 
gospel, the church, um, sacraments, very close together. Very close together. You look at various groups that say, we believe the Bible plus an infallible external authority, and those groups can't even agree on whether there's one God or many. So that should be the comparison that you're making. It's normally not the comparison that's made, but that should be the comparison that you're making. <coughs> so, to sum all this up, um, there's much more to this document than meets the eye. I'm sure there's all sorts of stuff going back and forth between Germany and, and Rome. And I, I know that, I, I'm sure that the last thing Francis wants to see happen is some, some, some kind of clear and obvious schism uh, during his days. And so um, that's in the background. The Synod is in the background. Um, Francis's health is in the background. Those are, those are all there. And if you don't put this document in that context and see it as simply the next step, in many steps that have already been taken by Francis to move Rome down this road. This is not going to be the last thing. They may... Uh, when's, when's the next Synod meeting? Is it April of next year? Is that what I'm remembering? I think it might be April of next year. Uh, that's going to be our next big indicator. Uh, what's going to come out there? <laughs> what if Francis dies? What if he resigns? Well, that can change change everything. Uh, but not in the sense of... See, everything that Francis is doing, he's doing to try to make sure that the direction cannot be changed when he does die. Um, can, can that get messed up? Well, of course, everything can. Um, but we'll see. We will see. Um, so there you go. <clears throat> I had a friend asking about this particular thing and I said, we'll be talking about it today on the program. Um, but especially keep in mind that Fernandez himself used the term development. That's how he explains the fundamental difference between March of 2021 and December of 2023. That's development. The change on the death penalty. Development. Um, adding dogmas to the gospel that, have, that were unknown the first 500 years of the church. Development. Um, once you don't have sola scriptura, development's all you got. And what's it going to develop on the basis of? Not an unchanging divine revelation, but society, societal development, political power, money, a lot of corruption in the Vatican. A lot of corruption in the Vatican. And oh, it's so sad to see all the people, well, you know, if he's actually said that, then that just makes him an anti-pope. And we've had anti-popes before, but we'll survive. We'll be good. And you're just like, oh, okay, all right, well, you just hope and pray 
that uh, the Lord um, opens hearts and minds. Okay, a quarter topic here. Just a quarter topic as I transition into the last part. Um, if you, I don't know if you saw the videos last night. My nation is being invaded. Literally. Over the past three years, millions, millions, more than the population of a number of our states put together, have invaded this country. And they've done so illegally. <clears throat> I, w- I saw a video less than a month ago of a bunch of young military men, looked Asian, military-aged men, waiting to be processed. You know what they're doing? They're standing at parade rest. I don't even think they realized it. But they're, they're plainly trained military. They're standing at parade rest. And they're undocumented immigrants. And at Eagle, what Eagle, whatever it is down there in Texas last night, just just Eagle Pass, just thousands and thousands of people. This nation has been taken over by its enemies. Um if if law had any meaning. And if we understood what the word treason meant, um, there would be a lot of gallows being set up. Won't ever happen. When this fundamental change takes place, (coughs) here's the problem. In God's blessing, this nation has been a stabilizing force in the world. I'm not saying it has has always been a force for good, because it hasn't. Especially since World War II. There's been a lot of greed. There's been a lot of imperialism on America's part, no question about it. Some of the things that the government has done, Eisenhower tried to warn us. I didn't know about it, but Eisenhower tried to warn us. He saw it coming. Uh, What we call the swamp, the deep state, it's been around for a long time. Um, But I think they're, they're cutting cutting off their nose to spite their face, um, <clears throat> there's going to be upheavals coming. There really are. And when I see this, did you see that, what was it called, the American Bible or something, where it's got <coughs> some large Southern Baptist church, I think, what had published this, and it's got the Bible, the Constitution, Declaration of Independence, couple other things. It's all this Trump guns and the Bible garbage. Um, it is the kind of Christian nationalism that we're not even talking about. It's the, but it's the stuff that is actually drawing huge crowds. You know, uh, Mike Flynn, yeah. This kind of stuff is frightening. Scary stuff, because it has no connection to the gospel. At all. Has no connection to holiness of life or anything like that at all. Um, That's not going to stop anything. But when this nation fundamentally ceases to be this nation, the world will reel. Um, And what's going to end up happening is 
so much violence will result that that's where the cry for a um, for totalitarianism will come from. Is people get sick and tired of the violence, and I just, I just want food. And if that means I have to give up all of my liberties to, to get it, that's when they'll be willing to do it. Just seeing it happening and <clears throat> feeling, in a sense, helpless to do anything about it. Um, but knowing what the answer is all along. And so we, we, have to, we have to remain focused upon that answer uh, and not give up hope in that. But there's, there's, there's going to be some challenges. Anyways, I just wanted to cover that very, very quickly because I saw that coming. All right, I need to wrap up. Um, by the way, I'm, I'm seeing that um, there may be a... Uh, the, the, the issue of Christian nationalism may be solved and decided much earlier than we thought it was going to be. Because there is going to be a wrap-off between Owen Strand and somebody who is a Christian nationalist, where they're going to have a competition. <clears throat> and Owen Strand's going to be against them, and they're going to be doing a rap thing. And whoever wins the rap thing, I guess that's where we, that's where we all get together. <clears throat> Maybe the only way we can all get together, I suppose. Um, but I, I never expected to be... <laughs> To go that direction. <laughs> oh, goodness. Um, which reminds me, I, I just... Um, I need to write to Jeffrey Johnson uh, and find out when I'm getting the new book. Because uh, it should have been out um, yesterday. I forgot yesterday. I've got... I've been a busy weekend. And uh, for some reason... Lots of stuff going on this week too. Um, so I'm still I'm falling behind on lots of things, and because uh, we need to have have Jeffrey on and be talking about the book, and um, I it just struck me I'm not sure what. Oh, I guess looking at I, I saw Owen Strand's name over on Twitter, and that's like oh hey, I I forgot to because I I told Jeffrey you want to have him on to talk about it, and uh, he said that'd be great, and so. I listened to the book once again on my last uh, trip. Uh, it was one of the driving things that we were doing. All right, to wrap up from last week, <clears throat> um, we had the discussion where we played some of the comments from the webcast in the UK. Uh, Pastor Briggs from Emmanuel in Sacramento. Steve Meister, uh, his fellow pastor there. <clears throat> and what happened was, um, I forget how it started, but comments were made on Twitter. Robert Briggs went on to Twitter. Um, you can still follow the whole conversation on my Twitter feed. It's still there. And... I was actually um, taking screenshots of it this morning uh, to provide to someone who's not on Twitter. And <clears throat> I, 
I'd say 90% came from me and 10% came from Brother Briggs. Um, and the useful part of it was this. I had asked for names to be named. If you're going to go on a webcast and say unnamed people are dangerous to the Reformed Baptist movement, causing division, <clears throat> and, and he was right. There, there's, there's two perspectives. But he identified the other perspective as Biblicist, Neo-Sicinian, Neo Canonicist, um, dishonest, lacking in integrity. Wasn't nice wasn't nice descriptions by any stretch of the imagination. His description of the other side was highly divisive in and of itself. Um, not a lot of hope for um, unity when that's your that's your description. And so um, we started talking and I just laid out very clearly. I said, you need to name names. If you're going to call some someone Neo-Sicinian, here is what Sicinianism is about. <coughs> and so you're 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 tarring and feathering somebody with anti-trinitarianism and heresy and all this stuff. Well, let let, let me just summarize. Um yes, they were talking about me. Yes, I am a canonicist according to them. Um and the answer to the Neo-Sassinian objection is it's not their anti-Trinitarianism, it's their methodology. Well, as I... The, the idea is, their idea is, well, they were Biblicists. They rejected the creeds of the church for a for sets of biblical arguments. And of course, we've refuted this canard over and over again. Um, and, and it's quite possible that Brother Briggs hasn't listened because he says, all I do is rant and rave and I'm filled with anger and all the rest of this stuff. And I'm like, brother, you're projecting. <laughs> you're, you're projecting on me. You need to stop that. Um, that's, that's not the case at all. Um, but the fact of the matter is they were rationalists. Uh, they rejected supernatural elements in uh, the text of Scripture and therefore would not accept key and vitally and important realities of incarnation and, and things like that, let alone the personality and deity of the Holy Spirit. Um, and so, just as so many Jehovah's Witnesses today, they were, they were rationalists. And so it's there, first of all, there wasn't there wasn't any one methodology, but if there if you would look at their catechism and and sort of what developed, uh, it would be a, a rationalism, not a chapter one of the London Baptist Confession uh, belief in the sufficiency of Scripture. <clears throat> so, um, and I just simply point out, then focus on the methodology and stop with the absurd, insulting terminology. That'd be like me, you know, calling someone a, a Neo-Mormon or a Neo-Jehovah's Witness or a Neo-Papist or whatever. There's no reason, there's no reason to add the um, extra color in that only 
detracts. If they're if they're if they're going to be acting with integrity, then what they would do is they would say, "Look, we have changed, and we used to believe that Scripture alone was sufficient to answer these things, but now we understand." that we need to have a significantly uh, deeper connection to the tradition of the church, to the uh, ancient creeds and symbols. Now, of course, they're not going to be consistent there. Um, they're only going to talk about the, the specific creedal statements, not the canons and decrees. They're not going to, in other words, they're not going to look at Nicaea or Chalcedon the way that the people of Nicaea and Chalcedon looked at Nicaea and Chalcedon. <clears throat> because whether they want to admit it or not, if you're a Baptist, you're a Biblicist. There's no way around it. You are a Biblicist. When you look, Luther was a Biblicist. The church said to him, here's our confessions and creeds. And Luther said, I hold them up to the standard of Scripture. We all used to agree on that. I still do. I think most of us still do. But a movement has developed, and it happens in every movement over time, and sometimes multiple times every few generations, <clears throat> where those foundational commitments get shaky, and there's a longing after certain liturgical traditions or things like that, and academia and stuff like that, and scholasticism, and, and people shift their emphasis. They don't want to talk about that. If, if these folks really, 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 really wanted to engage these things, they wouldn't be using terms like Neosacinian and all the rest of this stuff and using a term of Biblicist that has no meaning at all, that no one's causing that kind of problem. Nobody on our side is holds to, well, you should only use the words of Scripture to describe the teaching of Scripture. Yeah, give me a break. Nope. Nobody's doing that. Uh, if they really wanted to make an impact, then they'd put all that other stuff aside, and they'd focus on what the real issue is. And the real issue is, is Scripture sufficient to give us what we need to know and what is the relationship between the content of divine truth revealed historically through the apostles and prophets and especially in the person of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? What is the relationship between that and creedal statements in the past and confessional statements today? I think the authors of the London Baptist Confession nailed it. I really do. Um, but the question comes down to how do you make application? Um, and that's what they won't go after. That's what they won't touch. If they, if I am such a danger to reform Baptists, then why hasn't this group, um, gotten together and published a full scale rebuttal of the article that um, it's over there. I'm not going to stand up to go get it. That's in the current edition of the GBTS journal. 
Uh, I'm sorry, previous edition of the GBS, GBTS journal on Sola Scriptura, where all I do is I, ju I just walk through the key texts in chapter one and said, here's what this means, here's what this means, this is how you make application of that. <clears throat> I, I would think if the real issue was, oh, we've just we've just got these Neo-Socinian canonicists just uh, running rampant amongst us. Nah, get it. That, that's, all, that's all smoke and mirrors. It's, it's pure bunk. Has nothing to do with anything. We're talking here about what natural theology is, what natural revelation is. We're talking about um, methodology. And the fact of the matter is, we hold the ground there. We hold the ground there. And that's why you're doing all this imaginary, these people are dangerous, try to cancel them type stuff. Um, I'm seeing it happening, not just amongst Reformed Baptists, but other groups as well, to try to warn people off of that terrible James White guy. And when people ask why, and keep asking why, uh, they eventually get down to what the real issues are. And so, yes, to complete the story from last week, um, yes, that was, I'm, I'm that terrible, horrible person uh, in the midst of all that. I'm the terrible, horrible person in the midst of all that. And it had really no substance to it. It comes down to these other issues. Um about fundamental sources of authority and um, and just to a, a form of confessionalism that requires a level of um, compliance that is so narrow that the, the Presbyterians learned a long time ago it doesn't work. In other words, Presbyterians recognized um, we have to allow some level of liberty in the interpretation of these things. Or we will never, we won't be able to get, keep two churches together. And Reformed Baptists have not yet learned that. Well, I have, but um, the big boys, the big names, they haven't. And uh, I, I keep saying it, it's going to create a, a brittle, easily breakable, well, it's already broken up. I mean, you know, uh, 20 years ago, we were the big the big thing was Arbka. Uh, Arbka's gone, and there are a lot of reasons for that. But but that was one of the primary reasons is a emphasis upon the confession that requires a strict subscriptionism um, that the Presbyterians have come to recognize is fatal. That doesn't that doesn't mean you just don't care what it says. It means that these are words written by men and there are many times where they have to be interpreted as well. And um, some people want to just demand a very, very narrow uh, interpretation of things. So anyways, so want to just report on that, that uh, the conversation had taken place publicly. Um, and that the names were finally confirmed, uh, and as, and then 
no, the, the only defense that was given for the Neo-Sassinian thing was, well, we're not talking about the Trinity, we're talking about um, methodology. That you have the Sassinian methodology, which, again, is pure bunk, um, utterly untrue, and could be applied to Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, anybody. Uh, it's really, It's cheap. Cheap, lazy type of argumentation that hopefully will not be repeated again in the future, but I'll go ahead and predict now, probably will be. <laughs> so, yes, sir. <coughs> find, find the button there. What are you doing? Pushing buttons here. Um, there is one part of this discussion that I keep, that's been revived over the last week, and that is the so-called meeting that you refused no uh let me correct that um right. i raised that what uh, brother briggs was talking about is he reposted a message he sent me in facebook i don't remember having seen it but because Facebook, i hate facebook as you know yes if you ever want to send send me something that i will not see send it to me in facebook um i'm stuck on it because I'm stuck on it because I'm the old guy at Apologia, and all the rest of them grew up on it, so they use yeah. Facebook all the time. Yeah. Anyways, he sent me this message. And I still sent, use it, too. So What? Know, I still use it, too. We, we use it. You just, you know, don't really participate. No, that's true. Um, and so anyways, he was specifically talking about sometime when he said we should talk on the phone about one of these issues. I forget which one it was. Uh, and it wasn't the... Um, Thing to come up there and talk to Dolezal and right uh, and all the rest. Um, so he said, "No, that's not what I was talking about. I was talking about well, this." And, and, and that's fair. I, what Facebook I'm referring message. to, though, is I have seen which again. This, I don't, don't remember seeing it. But, yeah, I, I've I've seen a number of people over the last week uh, reposting and talking about that <laughs> meeting that you refused to go to it, uh, etc. Again, number one, they wanted to do this in private. And that's never been how we do things here. We don't go, you know, uh, hold up in a secret room and, you know, yammer about things and then come out. We, th this stuff needs to be done publicly anyway. But the idea that you somehow are dodging them, you know, I actually posted last week, I wonder if they would object to this if we, the next time they have a conference like they did shortly after that challenge, on our back doorstep if we just went in and plopped ourselves down in the front row how would they react to that can we talk publicly now no we won't because we all know what will happen we'll be shown the door and maybe rightly so and that's why you didn't do it in the first place but the the disingenuousness the dishonesty the misrepresentation needs to stop it just needs to stop I said that last week and yes, you did. And I'm saying it too. It needs to stop. Because the thing is, is that it is a reflection on their character when they do this. And they keep doing it. And we're going to keep pointing it out. And I'll, I'll throw this in while I'm at it here. You know, a number of these guys have gone back to your sermons or to your messages. This program from the past. It's all out there. We've never hidden a single program, okay? Never. So the entire body of work is out there for them to 
listen to, etc. Find out if you've made some major change in anything. You know what? A lot of these guys' stuff is out there too. It's true. And the big question they need to be asking themselves as they're so dogmatically making these proclamations now is, if I go back 10 years in my sermons, will I find myself contradicting what I'm saying now? No, Because no, a lot no, of them no, are. No, and they, and they say yes. And that's the whole point. But they accuse you of being the one that changed. Yeah, but they, but no, no, here's, here's, no, I, I disagree. Um, they say, we were confused, we didn't know, we weren't a- a- exact enough, and we've changed, and we've learned, and we've grown, and you're just simply digging your heels in, and you refuse to mature with the rest of us. Well, that's how they view it. So they, so they will admit, you can go back, 10 years, 15 years, and we will not be uh, precise enough. Right. They, they will say that. Well, And then their argument is, and you just need to listen to the rest of us, and you need to come along with the rest of us, and you need to um, do what we're telling you to do. And the issues are only on a tiny little oh, yeah. it's spectrum of... Yeah. A t- it, it, I, I mean, what language that you use to describe... The fact that um, the one scene in Isaiah 6 is glorious and the one scene walking next to the Sea of Galilee is not glorious as he was in Isaiah 6. Okay, what do you call that? You call that veiling. You can have all this discussion of uh, subtraction by addition and all the rest of this kind of stuff. And And I'm like, look. I've spent, we did that Christology dividing line where we we went for hours, it was two or three hours, and describing what Nestorianism, what Eutychianism is, um, uh, what Apollinarianism is, why we believe in the hypostatic union, and um, true canonicism is a form of either Eutychianism or Apollinarianism, depending on who's formulating it. and I to, to accuse me of that is just so absurd. Yeah. But uh, unfortunately, th- many in the Reformed Baptist movement have gotten their nose stuck in the attraction of scholasticism, and they literally are trying to teach their people to appreciate 25-page complicated philosophical treatises on specific language to avoid or use in talking about the hypostatic union without having actually gotten them to even understand what the deity of Christ is from scripture yet. Um, and it's going to, it's going to have long-term yeah. deleterious effects that we've warned about, but well, what can we say? My, so I so, think we're both on the same page. They have fallen in a pit and it, it, they need to go back to where they were. Well, I don't. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna say that um, that they need to forget any new publications that have come out from the framers or anything like that. My concern, honestly, is they need to recognize that there is a fundamental inconsistency between being a Reformed Baptist and trying to have a seat at the table of the great tradition. Yeah, um, absolutely. If they. If, they, they, they can't pull it off. This this isn't what brought me to the faith, and it's not what's kept me, and it's not... <laughs> it's, I, 
I keep going back to the scriptures. It's all I have. It's the only anchor uh, that, that leads me to the truth. And I'm just <coughs> not going to veer from that, no matter how many fancy words and Aristotelian me- metaphysical anomalies they want to bring up. I'm, I'm just not interested, and I'm not going to be. Well... When when our when our top leaders are presenting papers on appreciating Thomas Aquinas at the yeah. Vatican, that's when I go, yeah, it's I think we lost the. Flag. I think big we lost flag. the, lost the plot somewhere yeah. along the line, yeah. and um, maybe they, I mean unless hey hey, if I can go to the Vatican, and proclaim the gospel to these people and call them to. Uh, abandon their uh, man-made traditions that keep them from having peace with God, great, but that's not how you get an invitation to the Vatican. No, no it's not. That's not how you get an invitation to the Vatican. So, anyway. Alrighty, there you go. We went a good bit longer than we thought. Somehow my voice survived all that. And uh, we will be back, Lord willing, on uh, Thursday, I believe, uh, to take you right into the Christmas holiday with a little bit more discussion of Christian theology and apologetics. So thanks for watching the program today. We'll see you next time. God bless.